This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer. Worldwide, I'm Libby Snymer. Does your waist measure more than half your height? That could add up to danger for your health. And remembering Jack Rabinovich, businessman, philanthropist, and founder of the Giller Prize. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We just learned that Canada had its very own Holocaust hero who could have been just as famous as Oscar Schindler, the subject of Steven Spielberg's 1993 film Schindler's List. The Canadian hero you've never heard of is Julius Kuehl, who lived in Toronto with his family. He managed to save hundreds and possibly thousands of European Jews by distributing fake passports while serving as a Paraguayan consular official in Switzerland in 1941. Kuhl's fake passport ring was stopped after two years by the Swiss police. He passed away quietly in 1985 and never got the attention he deserved. A growing number of Zoomers in Canada are facing poverty and debt due to mortgages, divorce, illness, and continuing to provide for their adult children. According to the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, 19% of seniors still have mortgages to pay off, 15% have outstanding credit card debt, and 18% of all personal bankruptcies involve people over the age of 60. It's a problem around the world, not just in Canada, and experts say Canada needs tougher regulations for lenders who are dealing with seniors in debt. The Carter Burden Gallery in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City refuses to feature any works of art by those under the age of 60. The gallery opened a few years ago when the owner realized that older, lesser-known artists weren't getting any attention because of their age. The age restriction has made the gallery a big success with more than 100 solo shows and 50 group shows. I love Lucy and she loves me We're as happy as two can be A new biopic about groundbreaking comedian Lucille Ball has cast Oscar-winning actress Kate Blanchett in the lead role of Lucy. The role of Desi hasn't been officially cast yet. The script, approved by Ball's children, was written by the West Wing's Aaron Sorkin and will focus on the turbulent love story and business relationship between Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball, whose Desi Lou production company gave us the iconic show, I Love Lucy. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Does your waist measure more than half your height? In the U.S., that describes more than 90% of men and nearly as many women. A new study says this measure is more important than what the scale says, and they've coined a new word to describe it, overfat. 
To find out what it means for us, I talked to obesity specialist Dr. Sean Wharton, medical director of the Wharton Medical Clinic in Burlington, Ontario. Overfat is a new terminology that's really defining something that we've known for a long time. And overfat refers to extra weight in the central area, in the belly. So it's belly fat. Apparently, if your waist measures more than half your height, you are overfat. Well, yes, that is one of their ways of doing the, the, the definition. If we look at their actual paper, their main table one defined overfat as excess body fat that can impair health. And that's a better definition. It's more so about is that fat tissue impairing health? I'm trying to uh, get a mental picture on that. So a waist that's more than half your height. A six-foot man with a 40-inch waistline would be over fat. Correct. That's perfect. Exactly. So if your waist circumference is greater than 40 inches, you are likely in trouble. According to this research, more than 90% of American men are overfat, and uh, most American women are not far behind. I'm assuming that it's uh, very similar for Canadians. Yes, exactly. The Canadians mirror the Americans. We're a little bit behind the Americans when it comes to weight and the challenges that we have with weight, but we are pretty close. In the parts that I read, there were cautionary notes like, do not confuse this with being overweight. It's something different. Yes, it is. Right now, the definition of overweight is a BMI category. Um, Many people fall into that. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Serena Williams may fall into the category of overweight based on a BMI status. But in fact, she is super healthy. So what we really need to do is try to throw away these definitions of overweight and the obesity definitions and just look at is somebody's health in an impaired state due to abnormal fat tissue. Okay, well, first of all, it's hard to call it abnormal if more than 90% of men have this condition. So it's the norm to have an excessive amount of abnormal tissue, and that's why more and more people these days are getting diabetes, are getting cancer, because they walk around with abnormal fat tissue causing problems. We've known for a long time that carrying fat around your middle is dangerous. So what's new here? What is new is that we're trying to focus on this more so. So I like this paper, although the term overfat is a little tongue-in-cheek and it's a little interesting. I don't know whether it will gain a lot of scientific or medical use. It's kind of insulting, isn't it, overfat? (laughs) Yeah, so what we've looked at is that the fact that people who struggle with weight do not like the word fat. So if you put fat into anything, over fat, under fat, too fat, why are you fat, that, that is a problem. And so I think that what we have to change the terminology a bit, but what we do need to look at is if there's central excess weight and it's causing abnormal problems, then we need to look at it. How can we treat it? What should we do with it? And why is it happening? Why is weight around your middle so much more dangerous than fat in other places? We have the downtown fat, the fat that is in the central area, and then you have the fat that is in the suburbs, and that's in the peripheral area. That would be in the, in the legs and in the buttocks. That fat doesn't cause any problems. It's peripheral fat. It's not next to any organs. 
So if we look at fat in the central area, the downtown fat, that fat surrounds the pancreas, surrounds the liver. It surrounds a lot of the GI systems, the um, gallbladder. And when it infiltrates into those organs, it causes damage. I've seen even slim people who get these guts. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's a challenge for them because they're going to potentially run into problems, particularly if they have a family history of these medical issues, and then they start to develop um, that extra fat, even if they're thin, then it runs into an issue. And we do see that it happens in particular ethnic groups. And so the ethnic groups that we see who are can be looked at as relatively thin, but having a bit of a gut and causing a problem are the Asians, the South Asians, and the Aboriginal um, groups tend to have this body presentation and the central fat causing problems. How much of it is related to age? I mean, there are very few older men that I know that do not have a gut. Yeah, it's highly correlated with age. So we know that as we get older, the fat tends to go more to the downtown areas and the central area than it goes to the suburbs. Why it does that, we don't exactly know. What do you say to people who say it's very hard for them to get rid of the fat there? It's true. It is very hard to get rid of the fat there. It's hard to get rid of fat anywhere period. It's hard to lose weight and keep it off over the long term. It takes a lot of, of effort um, and, uh, and continued focus. It's hard to lose weight in, in the central area. It's hard to lose weight in the legs and the buttocks and the arms, anywhere. It's hard. A lot of people are told that they can target that fat with certain kinds of diet or certain kinds of exercise. Is that right? Yes, people are told that, and that's wrong. That is, that's baloney. It doesn't make any sense. It's incorrect data. It's not scientific, but it's what people want to hear. And the reason why they want to hear that is because weight loss is so hard and challenging, and the real truth about how you lose weight and how you, how you keep it off is not a fancy story, but it's a difficult story, and nobody likes that real story. Are you going to tell us anything that's going to make us feel okay about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I can say is that it's possible. There is still a light at the end of the tunnel here for people who are trying to lose weight, trying to be healthy. The important thing is don't focus on weight. Just stop Stop weighing yourself. Stop going on the scale. Stop all of this. Go towards health. If you have blood sugars that are elevated, cholesterol levels that are elevated, your blood pressure is a challenge, your fatty liver, then you need to improve your behaviors. The more you work in the behaviors, the weight will follow and the health will end up getting better. So stop focusing on weight, concentrate on health, and have a better body image, a body image of yourself and love yourself more. That was Dr. Sean Wharton, Medical Director of the Wharton Medical Clinic in Burlington, Ontario. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, remembering Jack Rabinovich. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. For the price of a meal in this town, you can buy all the books. So eat at home and buy the books. That's businessman and philanthropist Jack Rabinovich delivering a message he repeated often. He's best known for founding the Giller Prize, now known as the Scotiabank Giller Prize, 
which became a huge boost for Canadian writers and Canlit as a whole. Last Sunday, Jack died at the age of 87 following a catastrophic fall at his home in Toronto. After the funeral, I sat down with Jack's longtime friend, the cartoonist Terry Mosher, who draws under the pen name Aislinn. Terry was part of the Montreal group that included Jack's late wife, Doris Giller, and his lifelong friend, the iconic writer, Mordechai Richler. You and Jack Rabinovich go back a long time. How long? Well, it's, it was a growing relationship, and I'll tell you why. I knew Doris Giller uh, far better than I knew Jack initially. In the 70s, there was a real sort of wrecking crew club that hung around the press club in Montreal. Nick Oftermar, of course, the infamous journalist, politician, uh, myself, uh, Mordecai Richler, and this wonderful party woman by the name of Doris Giller, and we were there much of the time. But then Doris began disappearing. The night of the 1980 referendum, I drew a cartoon that is well-remembered of Pierre Trudeau slyly saying to René Levesque, did the earth move? <laughs> Both in their underwear. So the, uh, in any case, Doris came to me the next day and said, I want to buy that drawing. I said, okay. Uh, and so she bought the drawing and she said, right on it to Jack. I said, Doris, who's Jack? Like, you know, she hadn't told it. Anyway, it evolved that this guy was a businessman, which, you know, we found deplorable. But then Mordecai kept saying, he's okay. He's all right. So we believed him. And then in the mid-'80s, when Jack and Doris moved to Toronto, actually my own dad died at that time. And I came down to Toronto for the funeral and finally met Jack, the, the infamous Jack, and he would have loved the guy. And slowly but surely over the years... He's evolved into being my second dad. And I could call Jack anytime. And he was one of those magic old-fashioned guys who still answered the phone whenever you called. Uh, and so I would call him when I was puzzling over some limit or not because Toronto's still a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, he had all kinds of great advice for me over the years about books, about all kinds of things. So it really became a growing friendship. And after Doris died, of course, it was even more so. What was your experience of how he came to found the Giller Prize? Well, it's a wonderful Canadian story, the business of, of him and Mordecai getting it. And, you know, Jack was hugely in love with Doris, and he wanted to do something as a tribute to Doris Giller. She, of course, was a literary journalist. Yes. Uh, Doris Giller, when I first knew her, was working at the Montreal Star. Then she came over to the Gazette as a book editor. Uh, and then when they moved to Toronto, eventually caught on with the Toronto Star. So she's always been sort of a literary journalist, if you will. So it made sense to establish some sort of award. But Mordecai, spending Jack's money, <laughs> said, really, you should really do this upright, Jack, and uh, make it uh, a Montreal party in Toronto. And that was the initial idea. That's why they served French fries at the Giller dinner. It seems to have had an incredible impact, even when you compare it to other philanthropic awards. It may be that the Governor General's Award, which, of course, was well established at that time, but there were sort of boring ceremonies in Ottawa where I think they served tea or something like that. But you get the idea. Uh, and people would kind of show up. and would, But it would appear on page... B-16 of the newspaper, a little item at the bottom of the page, it wasn't getting much attention. So I think that was a, really a factor in, in both Mordecai and Jack Rabinovich deciding, we're going to throw a Montreal-style party in Toronto. And indeed, that's what they did. What do you think it did in terms of encouraging writers? Oh, there's undoubtedly, it's just been a major impetus in terms of encouraging writers, especially now that after sort of the major figures in the literary field in Canada won the award, but then they began giving the award to other lesser known people. So it creates this excitement that there's this possibility 
even for first-time novelists, uh, to win this gigantic prize and get this tremendous amount of attention. And they did that. So it was very, very encouraging, I think, for writers. What about the other parts of Jack's life that we heard about at uh, the funeral, his life as a businessman? Well, Jack's life as a businessman, I understand that he was very, very successful, but this is something I don't understand, the world of business and so on. But what I do really respect is the fact that he gave back, and not only in terms of the Giller Awards, but also in terms of support of hospitals and so many other really great institutions here in uh, you know, he was on the board of directors of so many outfits where, where money had to be raised, and Jack was a major factor in doing that. A third factor, too, is I think probably, uh, and this really came out at the funeral before, his loyalty to friends, and he was that. He was extremely loyal to people and well-loved. One of the first things that his daughters said was he never forgot where he came from. This is absolutely right. He's he, much like, you know, Mordecai's title for a book. He was a St. Urban's horseman and came from the storied St. Urban Jewish district in Montreal. By the way, I was born on St. Urban Street. Well, look at these legends who came out of it. Moses, Jack Urbanovich, Mordecai Richler. So it's a storied area, but you all made it out. The other thing that struck me is that the guy left such a huge legacy. Jack Urbanovich's legacy is obviously, in the literary world, uh, the, the Giller Awards. Secondly, it's for the good he did, particularly in, in Toronto, for hospitals and so many other organizations, serving on the board, raising a lot of money. He brought the building of the new Princess Margaret Hospital in on time and under budget. Yes, he's very fond of saying that. I heard him saying it over and over and over again. It's one of those sort of sort of things that, that Jack was very, very proud of, no question about it. And with uh, Bob Ray, by the way. Bob Ray, who was premier at the time, made sure that the government moved in that direction. And Bob Ray, in effect, became Jack Rabinovich's best friend. And speaking of that, his third legacy, I think, is the strong friendships that he established with so many people, uh, myself included. We all love Jack. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up this week, we also lost Glenn Campbell. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, a powerful exhibition details the true espionage story behind the Nazi who planned out his evil solution in World War II. It's at the Museum of Jewish Heritage until December 22nd. In London, tour the city's new postal museum and the mail rail attraction, which is open to the public for the first time. It retraces the vital role the Royal Mail has played over Britannia's 500-year history. Fans of the classic The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly can walk through the restored Sad Hill Cemetery, where the iconic showdown involving Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef was shot near Burgos, Spain. It's been restored lovingly by volunteers who each paid $20 to have their names etched on tombstones. And a major exhibition called Brave New World Australia has opened at the National Gallery of Victoria, exploring how artists responded to 
the major social and political concerns of the 1930s, including the Great Depression and the looming war in Europe. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, we said goodbye to Glenn Campbell. The country music star passed away at the age of 81, six years after revealing he'd been diagnosed with early-stage Alzheimer's disease. Glenn Campbell was a major music star in the late 1960s and well into the 70s. He sold over 45 million records worldwide, won five Grammys, had a dozen gold records and 75 chart hits, including Southern Nights and Rhinestone Cowboy. His announcement about his Alzheimer's diagnosis pushed him back into the public eye, and he shared his struggle with the disease in the very personal 2014 film, I'll Be Me, which documented his day-to-day life throughout his goodbye tour. Right now, we'll hear the song that's synonymous with the name Glenn Campbell. Here is Rhinestone Cowboy. I've been walking the That was Rhinestone Cowboy. Country music icon Glenn Campbell passed away this week at the age of 81. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer Moses Snymer. Produced by Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.